Well, this morning I want to build off of a uh, sermon I gave a couple weeks ago, uh, the day after Christmas, so I am counting on the fact that not all of you were here the day after Christmas, so I'm going to touch on a few things I want to build on before we jump into uh, the conversation this morning. Uh, A couple weeks ago I did a sermon that we called The In-Between, and what we talked about uh, with The In-Between were these these parts of life where we are in between things we uh, we have left off from a, from one place in life and on our are on our way to somewhere else in life, but in the process we are in neither place so we 're in between those two places. This happens in all sorts of places in our life in our careers we may feel like we're leaving one place in a career and moving on to something else, but we are really not fully in either area yet. Or in a relationship, we might, uh, we might have met this person and we're pretty sure this is going somewhere, but we're not there yet. Or it happens in parenting. We might feel like, like parenting, like we want to be parents, and we, we feel like children is a good place for us to move toward, but we don't yet have kids in our lives, so we're in between. Or maybe we've had the kids, and now they're somewhere else, and we're not yet the grandparents, and it's this in-between place, right? So there are all sorts of these different in-betweens that we live in, and it's a difficult place to be in an in-between, because being in an in-between, there's all sorts of uncertainty, and we're, we can have all sorts of risks that happen. There isn't a lot of stability. Uh, we, we talked about all these things uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I shared my story uh, of being in and in between in our life, in the life of our family right now, as, as we felt God move us from one thing, and we're not quite at the thing that we feel like he's moving us toward, and, and I shared a little bit of that story, and when we walked away from it, we had a couple big ideas that we kind of took with us, uh, and they both came under the idea that God wants to build hope in us while we're in the in-between. Because the in-between can be a very hopeless place to be because we're not there and we're not here. We're in this, this place in-between. So it can be a hopeless place to be. But we talked about two ways that God wants to, to build hope in us. One of them, we looked at the story of when Jesus had sent his disciples across to the other side of the lake. And he had stayed behind to pray. And in the process of going across the lake, they got stuck in a storm. And in order to to connect with them and help them in the midst of the storm, Jesus actually walked out on the water to them. And we learned uh, about the historic practice of call and response preaching last week, and you got to participate in that. We'll see if any of you remember this, because when Jesus calls you to the other side of the lake, we're going to the other side of the lake. See, you guys are on top of it. So we talked about that, how when Jesus calls us to the other side of the lake, we're going to the other side of the lake. There may be storms, there may be difficulties, there may be trials that we go through, but when Jesus calls us, we're going to get there, even if he has to walk out on the water to get us. And then we also looked at Paul and some of his insights about living in the in-between and how Paul's, uh, the force of Paul's words resounded with the truth that Paul wanted us to grasp the depth and significance of Jesus' love for us in the in-between. That, as Paul was writing to people who were in an in-between, his, the force of his words 
were exclusively about God's love for us in that place. And how he didn't have a five-step plan. He didn't have a neat acronym to go with it. All that, all that Paul wanted us to take was that God loves us more than anything when we're in the midst of that in between. So we talked about uh, those things. And many of you came up to me after and shared your own in-betweens. And I had a number of conversations. And I want to share a couple of reflections um, based on those conversations and some of what, what God's continued to speak um, after this, one of them about the in-between is that one of the ways to read the Bible is as a story of the in-between. Because we have at the beginning of the Bible, you've got a story of a garden and a tree. And the man and the woman in that story encounter the tree, and that's where the story of sin enters the story of humanity. And then you could say that the rest of the Bible is the story of humanity's interaction with sin. Because then at the end of the Bible, you have a story of a city and another tree, and that's where the story of sin ends. So you've got a garden and a tree, and then a city and a tree, and between that, you have the whole scriptures, which is a story of the in-between, and that in-between is the story of sin. So we see how that So that's one way to understand is that sin in and of itself is an in-between. And then that story is actually a reflection of ourselves. And that there is an in-between that we live in, in a place where we are in sin, but there will be a point where we stand at that tree. And some of the in-betweens that we are in are so painful and so deep that we won't be fully arrived outside of them until we stand at that tree in that city, because that's when we will have a full expression of healing. That's when the pain that we're experiencing will be able to be healed. That's when we will be reunited with family members who we've lost on this journey. So there's part of that story could be that in-between, that we don't fully arrive outside of the in-between until we get to that tree. And then there's also part of and this is important for us today, theologically we believe that the kingdom of heaven we are actually in an in-between of the kingdom of heaven. Because when Jesus was walking around, doing his thing, walking on water and, and other things, he almost always, I think almost always, I won't say always because I'll just say almost always, talked about the kingdom of heaven in the present tense. He, he talked about the kingdom of heaven as being now. And Jesus rose out of his tomb as a sign of the kingdom of heaven being now. But the reality that we experience is brokenness. We experience death. We experience pain. We have lives that don't reflect a, full, uh, a fullness of the kingdom of heaven being now, right? Like we know that this is not what the kingdom is fully. So we know that the kingdom is now, that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he, when he rose from the dead, when he lived his life. He began this kingdom of heaven but we won't fully experience it in being whole and not broken and having full life until Jesus returns. So right now we are in this in-between of the kingdom is now, but it's also not quite yet too. Does that make sense? If it does to you, tell me, because I need to talk to you. Um, I need to figure it out. Uh, So that's where we also live too, and that's important for us today because that's going to help us uh, process some of this conversation as we talk about what it means to arrive. Because that's what I want to do today, 
is we're going to do a little Bible study, look at some scriptures. When we talked about the being in between, leaving off from one area and then being in this place where we're not yet where we're going, what I want to do today is look at some scriptures where we have people arriving. We have people coming out of an in-between where they've been someplace where they knew God had sent them someplace. They weren't yet there, and then they got there. And what happens, and what does the scriptures say about how we get there? And what do we do when we arrive? Uh, how would God have us to interact with that arriving? As we move into a new year, it seems appropriate to talk about arriving because a lot of people, uh, they're arriving at different things um, and wanting to, to see their life um, move in that way of, of having new things start and go in a specific direction. So that's what I want to look at uh, this morning. To do that, I want to open up to Joshua chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. If not, the the scriptures will be on the screen, so you can follow along there. If you don't have a Bible at home, we have, or with you, if you don't have a Bible at home, you want to have one at home, we have Bibles on the back table back there that we would love for you to have. But before we go into Joshua, let me set up the, the story we're going to read for you. The Hebrew people had been faced with the possibility of a famine. In order to escape the famine, they went to Egypt because of some family connections. You can read about this story in Genesis if you really want. Uh, but they escaped to Egypt to escape the famine. And they survived and then thrived after this famine. And it's, I think it was 500 years or something like that. They are living in Egypt, uh, but not integrating with the Egyptians. They as a people remain separate, living in the country, but not becoming a part of the country. They don't, they don't do like America. They don't become the melting pot, right? They, they stay separate as a part of this country, which is fine until the, the, he, the, the Egyptian king, the pharaoh, begins to oppress them and enslave them and force them into labor. And in this process, the Hebrew people start calling out to their God and saying, God, help us, rescue us, save us from this oppression, which their God responds to, because the God of the Bible we have here, we, we learn at this part of the story, is a God that rescues and redeems people. So God rescues them through the leadership of Moses, and through a number of miraculous events, leads them out of Egypt. And you can watch the movie at Easter, Charlton Heston will show you how it all went down. Um, amazing special effects and all. Uh, so you, you can follow that story there. Now, they're headed toward the promised land, this land that had been promised to their ancestors that this would be their inheritance, this is where they would live and grow and thrive. But in route, things start to break down for them. And they start to turn on the God who rescued them. And as a result, God says, you know what? You people need to have your hearts remade. You need to have your lives turned around. Because your hearts are hardened to me, you're not going to go into the land of promise. Your children are. So we're going to spend 40 years wandering around, letting you all die off until your children are ready to come. That's a harsh way to say it, isn't it? That's what happens. Uh, so wandering around until you're able to come into this land of promise. So this is the in-between that these Hebrew people live in. This 40 years of wandering around, eating something that they literally call, what is it, manna? It's, what is it? We don't know. We just eat it every day. Uh, and drinking water from rocks and all sorts of crazy stuff. So they spend all this time in between. Now, this is where we come to their arriving. Moses dies. Joshua assumes leadership of the Hebrew people. And this is the moment of their arrival at the promised 
land. So Joshua 3.14 uh, is where I'm going to start off. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan and they'd move into the land of promise, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood, flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a tall town called Adam in the vicinity of Zaranthin. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed, from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you take up a stone on your shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them on their camp, to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. So here we have the Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew people arriving at their promised land. And the first thing that they do is set up a monument that will help to serve them in remembering what God has done. If you are a note per taker, you like to fill in blanks. We've got a page with blanks on it. You can fill in. Uh, you can fill this blank in. One of the things that will help us in arriving is to remember what God has done. That's what this story is about, is setting up a remembrance. When we arrive at a place that Jesus has sent us to, one of the things that we can do to help us in that arrival is to remember what God has already done. In order to properly live in the present, we need to remember our past. If we fast forward the story of the Hebrew people, what we could call that story is a story of forgetting. Because they fail to remember they fail to look back and see what God had done and fail to live in light of what God had already done. See, the nature of the problem is this. When we live in the in-between, it is inherently a hard place to live. When we are in-between things, we are uncomfortable. We have struggles. We have doubts. We have dissatisfactions about the way that life is. When we're in the in-between, there's not a lot of things to lean on or take comfort in. So when we're in that in-between, it is very natural and real and honest for us to turn to God in the midst of that. 
the Hebrew people were enslaved. And in that enslavement, they called out to God because God is a God of redemption and rescue. That's the, that's the story of the God of the Bible, is a story of a God who redeems and rescues people from hard and broken places. So when your life isn't hard and your life isn't broken, when it's comfortable, when it's a land flowing with milk and honey, when it's the promised land, when you've arrived, there isn't a lot of necessity for a God that redeems and rescues, right? That's the nature of the problem. When we arrive, there is this tendency to fall into this place of comfort, this place of rest, this place of security where there isn't the necessity of a redeeming and rescuing God. So we forget. We forget the past. We forget to see what God has already done and, and begin living in our circumstances and forgetting who God is and what he does. This is why God instructs Joshua and the Hebrew people to remember, to set up a monument to remember so that they can pass on to their children. This is who God is, and this is what he's done. We are here in this beautiful place because God did this and brought us from that place. To go on remembering. Now, their story is is that they forget. They go on forgetting, and it it doesn't go well for them because of that. Uh, I had a class at the U of M. Uh, It was called Spirituality in Youth Work. It was a really interesting class to have at, at the U. And one of the things we did... Uh, as part of the class is we went to a, a Jewish synagogue in St. Paul. College field trips, you have to love them. We went down there and met with uh, one of the, the youth director at this at the synagogue and had a conversation with her about uh, how she approaches her, her youth work and the spirituality she's trying to impart to her students, to, to her youth as part of her youth work within a synagogue. And one of the things she did was showed us this this calendar. She had drawn this I had our guys do a much slicker version. She just drawn it on a on a flip chart. Our guys they made it tech savvy. Uh, this is the calendar, and and when she talked about what she does with her her youth, it all centers around this. This is the Hebrew calendar, which by the year it's fifty seven seventy one by the Hebrew calendar. If you're wondering, uh, but this is the calendar, and this is how she drawn it in this circle. Uh, associating each date with uh, with the holiday. Now, how do we typically do calendars? What does a calendar look like for us? What what shape do we use? A square. We use boxes, right? That go in a line. Top left. Read it to right. Go down. You check off the day as you get past. We think linear. We think in a linear fashion when it comes to time. What she was trying to do with her students because of what she understood about what the Scripture said about this practice of remembering, was to help them see their time and their year as not a line but as a circle, that they keep coming back to the same things over again because they keep remembering. They don't see their present as something that stands alone. What she wanted her students to grasp was this idea that their present is entirely dependent on their past, and they keep coming back to it over and over again, because the story that they're in isn't just their own story. Their story is a story about their past as well. So their present is intimately connected with their past. She wanted her students to grasp this idea because she believed that when her students saw themselves as part of the story, they would connect with God in a more meaningful and intimate way because they saw how God had worked 
so they would see how God was at work in their own lives. Because that's part of the problem, isn't it? In the present, it is very difficult to see how God has been at work in our lives. We often, I've had so many, talked to so many different people who can say, when they look back at their life, I saw God at work, I saw God doing this, and I saw God bring me from this into this, and I saw God do this thing in my life at that time, and I really needed this to happen, I thought, but then I saw that God did this, and, and they can look back and with great clarity articulate how it is that they've seen God do things in their lives in the past but struggle and have great difficulty articulating anything about what God is doing in their present. Does anybody relate to this? It's easy to look back and see what God has done, but it's very hard to look in our present and see what God is doing, and that's why we need to remember. Because when we see a pattern of God working in our life and God bringing us from one thing to another and God leading us and guiding us and God being faithful to us, when we're in our present, when we're in our now, we'll be able to trust that God is doing the same thing. We'll be able to see patterns. We'll be able to see the way that God has done something before and say, hey, maybe God is doing that again now. So that's why God calls the people here to remember. Because in remembering, we can see not only what God has done, because it's not about nostalgia. It's not about great stories at holidays, which, you know, is fun. It's about seeing what God is doing now because we need to have that in our present. When we arrive, there's a danger that we'll stop seeing God. We need to remember in order to see what God is continuing to do in our life. So when we arrive, we need to establish these meaningful practices. And remember, the model for us here is a big pile of rocks. Like, this is the model for us. So be creative. When this comes to you practically of what it, does it mean for you to remember The model is a pile of rocks. Think creatively about it. This may be a family, you know, a photo album that you put together that reminds you of different things that God has done. This may be a piece of jewelry that you wear that has specific significance to it. This may be a family holiday that you establish on, you know, August 8th that you celebrate as a family to to remember this thing that God has done. And it doesn't have significance to anyone but to you, this is, this is the beauty of the Bible. It's creative. It allows you liberty to embrace something that will help you remember and celebrate that. So do that. Think creatively. How, what is it that we've seen God done, and how can we celebrate that and make a practice of celebrating it so that we can pass it on to others, particularly in families, because that's the model that the Scriptures talk about here. When, they, when your children ask about this pile of rocks, it has a story about what God has done. You know, when we celebrate on August 8th, you know, make up your name for it, whatever it is. We can tell our children, God did this, and that's why we celebrate. Uh, If you want to turn, we're going to go ahead and go to Nehemiah 9. (laughs) So the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews, they did not succeed in remembering. They went about forgetting. And as a result... God sends them into an exile. God reaches this point where he says, you know what? You are my people, but you're not representing who I am. So we need to, to go back to an in-between. You need to, to, to go through some difficulty in order to return to me and turn your hearts back toward me. So they go in this, into this exile. They're conquered by the Babylonians. They're taken away as captives. And for 70 years, they live as people who don't have a home. They live as slaves and servants 
uh, under another country. And then they're allowed to return back, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and begin the worship of God again. And that's the story that we find in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I want to look at, uh, at Nehemiah 9. This is the story of them re-arriving at Jerusalem. This is what happens after they've been in this in-between of the exile. They return and arrive again at Jerusalem. And this is what happens. Uh, I'm going to start with 938, and then we're going to skip forward in 10 and move around a little bit. So 938 says this, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters, who are able to understand all of these that now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands and regulations and decrees of our Lord. We promise to, and then it goes on. And we could, I, I read through this the first service and I realized we need to just skip ahead. <laughs> this. So it goes on and it, it lays out all of these, uh, these rules and regulations for how the people are going to live their lives. It, it orders a specific uh, conduct of life that they're going to order with. And it finishes with this sentence, we will not neglect the house of our God. So they set about doing this. If you're a note taker, uh, you could write it out this way. It says that they establish a new pattern of life. Upon arriving, the people set about establishing a new pattern of life. Uh, scholars argue and debate how it is that we got the Bible in the form that we have it. And one of the places they point to is this, in, in, in this point in history. And a lot of scholars look at this point in history and say, this is the point in history when the law, when the books of Moses, uh, and a lot of the histories, First and Second Kings, all of that, Chronicles, that took the form that we have it now during this period under Ezra and Nehemiah and the priests with them. Uh, if that's the case, there is even more weight to this, uh, this pattern of arriving, of establishing a new life. They took all these documents and said, this is how we are going to live and set up a very detailed and intricate pattern of life. Or it may be that those documents had been that way for generations and, and they were renewed at this point. But either way, even if we just look at what Nehemiah says, what they're doing as a people is taking seriously a proactive stance of establishing a new pattern of life for themselves upon arriving at a new stage in life. They are being proactive of saying, we are not going to allow the circumstances that we're in to dictate the pattern of life that we establish. Instead, what they do is they go about establishing a specific lifestyle, specific values in life, and specific uh, conduct for life in light of what they believe is important and what they believe God has asked them to do and the people that God has asked them to be. So they, they're proactive about establishing this pattern of life. And I would even go so far as to say this is true not only for arriving, this is also should be true of living in the in-between. In reflection, when I was 
as I was preparing this and looking back at our life, I would say that this was the greatest failure on my part. Uh, I'll, I'll take credit for it. I won't give any blame to my wife that she's not here. Uh, I'd say this was my greatest failure with our family in these last three years as we've been living in this in-between is that we've been reactionary to our circumstances rather than proactive about establishing a pattern of life that would be healthy and good for us in light of our circumstances. Does that make sense? Because we have this tendency to be like water and just follow the course of least resistance, right? We go through life and we we just find our way through it because it can be so overwhelming, it can be so difficult at times. But what we see here is a proactive approach to living life. To, to take the values that the scripture lays out, to take the commands, to take the, the way of life that this God who rescues and redeems says will benefit you, to help you stay rescued, to help you stay redeemed, and to order your life accordingly. Instead, we often just find our way through it as we go through it. There isn't a proactiveness to it. There isn't an establishment of a pattern of life that will be healthy and lead to healthy relationships and stability and being able to parent well, and be able to maintain a healthy marriage, or healthy relationships with friends, or a, or a maintainable lifestyle. This is what this scripture seems to be laying out, is this is the way to approach life, in a proactive way, not a reactionary way. So they're arriving this second time, and establishing this new way of life. The leaders of the people are saying, if we're going to be the people God wants us to be, we have to be proactive about this. The final arrival I want to look at is the arrival of the church. Uh, If you want to go to Acts 15, uh, we're going to look there. And what we have happening here, the background on this is, uh, the first people who followed Jesus, and Jesus himself, were all Jewish. And so the first practice of following and worshiping Jesus was done within the Jewish context. The, the first followers of Jesus understood the worship and devotion to Jesus as an, an expression of their Jewish faith. Now, these people who were following Jesus, they started to move other places. There was actually a war in Jerusalem that sent many of them all over the world. And they started to go around to other places. And initially, they were just going around to other Jewish people saying, hey, we discovered this new thing about being Jewish that's fulfilled in Jesus. So we think you should try it out. Well, what started happening was these people who weren't Jewish started hearing about this Jesus, and they're like, hey, we want in on that too. That sounds like a good deal. So it created a bit of a crisis because they're like, well, we like Jesus, but we like bacon too. So how is, it, how is it that we can have both? So they, they started figuring this out. And they're like, well, what do we do because of this? How is, is Jesus central? And there's just some, some Jewish aspects, some, some Jewish points of reference to Jesus? Or is being Jewish central? And then there are some points of reference in Jesus about what that means. So they had to start sorting through this and and trying to understand what that meant and how they would instruct other people to live as followers of Jesus and doing that. So they were arriving at this new place of how do we how do we do this? Is this a new 
practice of faith, or is this an old practice of faith, or is it something in between? And they're navigating this, and they couldn't exactly just go to Jesus because he'd risen from the tomb and then gone to the Father, so he's not terribly helpful there. Uh, So they had to kind of navigate it on their own, but that's the caveat of kind of uh, in this. So this is the story that leads to this point. And there were some people within their ranks who were very devout on the practice of being Jewish. So they said, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be Jewish. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to obey the Sabbath. You've got to you know, do all these things. And people are like, hold on a minute. I'm not too sure about all those things. So they had to navigate this. And this is what happens. This is the context for, this, uh, for the scriptures we're going to read. Um, Acts 15, 22 through 29. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers, Gentile means non-Jewish, Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. Those were the people who went off trying to tell them they need to convert to Judaism to be uh, followers of Jesus as well. Um, I just lost my... uh, Disturbed you. Um, And troubled your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So what they do here is in the midst of this crisis about what it means to follow Jesus in relation to being Jewish and all the, the codes and regulations involved with that is they just lay out a few things. They say um, this food that's been sacrificed to, to idols is part of, a, part of a, a, a worship practice that we don't want to participate in. We don't think that that's what Jesus' followers do. So avoid that. Avoid consuming blood meat from strangled animals, those are all practices that have to do with idolatry, and abstain from sexual immorality. Those things would be good. Those things are things that followers of Jesus would do. The rest of it, we're okay with. But what the important part of this arriving is, is not the conclusion they come to, in as much as it's the way that they come to the conclusion that they reach. And it's back here uh, in verse 8 and 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They reach the conclusion that they do, and I would argue that the next part of the next blank you can fill in, the next thing that I would articulate about what it means to arrive, to arrive well is to have a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit. As the church arrives at being the church, they do so with a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a risk in bringing this up within the modern church because we have televangelists. And there's a little chuckling, you know where I'm going. And there is an association between 
what we see happen on television with these televangelists and a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that those aren't mutually exclusive. That what I'm talking about when I talk about a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit is actually part of an orthodox Trinitarian understanding of the, of the, of the Christian faith. That for as long as we have had Christianity, we have had a belief in God in three persons. And our church fathers have gone to great and astounding lengths to maintain and send down to us this understanding that God exists in three unique and distinct ways. And that it is one God, but is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And we have this culture that's kind of moved the Holy Spirit to the, the fringes because of an association with some things that not all of us feel comfortable associating with, right? So there is this allergy that can happen of this. But what we see in the scriptures is the necessity of a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit. And it's foundational to being a Christian. And I wrote it down, and I'm going to read what I wrote because I want to get the language right because this is a very tricky thing to articulate. So, so bear with me reading to you. I try not to do that too often. But being that we are in the in-between of the kingdom of heaven, where and when the Father and Son are physically absent from the material world, we have the real presence of the Holy Spirit, who calls us to repentance and belief in Jesus as the Messiah, and indwells and transforms those who believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ. What we see here in the realities of the early church and down through the history of the church is the necessity of and benefit of a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit. What I mean by this is much more simple than this theological language sounds. But it, it is this. When we arrive, when we get to the place that we believe God has called us to, it is a necessity that we be aware that God is with us. Because that is the point of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus has gone to the Father to prepare a place for us. But in his place, he has given us the Holy Spirit so that we wouldn't be alone to navigate through this without any guidance, but that we have the Holy Spirit who is real and tangibly with us when we turn our lives and follow Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It's much simpler than it sounds. Because within the conscious reliance of the Holy Spirit, we, give, we begin to recognize that God has given us gifts and produces in us fruit that help us embody this kingdom. Because remember where we started? That we are in this in-between within the kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully realized within our lives. So there is this movement that is happening of the kingdom is not stagnant, but it continues to move forward toward its realization and, and our experience of it. With arriving, there is this inference that when you arrive someplace, you stop. When you're with the kids in the car, are we there yet? Are we there? Because what do they want to do? They want to get out of the car. They want to be done with the traveling. They want to be able to do other things. There's this understanding this belief, this inference we have when we talk about arriving in something, when we look forward to that next career, when we look forward to that relationship, when we look forward to being parents, whenever it is we look forward to, there's this sense that when we arrive there, we'll have achieved everything, right? 
They'd be like, finally, we can rest. We're there. Now, when you get married, like you realize it's like, oh, so this is where all the work starts. <laughs> right? Because up until then, it wasn't work. You get the rings, and a couple days later, you're like, wait, this is hard. You get kids, and it's like all this anticipation and getting the room ready, and it's like, this will be so much fun when the baby's actually here. We can welcome this person in the world. And then suddenly they arrive, and it's like stuff shooting out of both ends, and you're like, what? I didn't sign up for this. And then they start to talk, and it's fun until they talk back. And there's this sense that when we get there, that's when everything stops. When we arrive, we're there, and there's no more necessity of movement. What we see within these scriptures and with each one of these things is that arriving is really a new beginning and a new movement. That as we arrive at something, what the scriptures tell us and what they lead us to is arriving, being prepared to move. Being, able, being ready to be led by God into what it means to be in this new place. Because arriving doesn't mean being in a place where things will be still. It means beginning something new that will move you to new and different places. And we see that within this one in particular, within this conscious reliance of the Holy Spirit, because when we arrive in that awareness of and reliance on the Holy Spirit, we will begin to see that God moves us in new and different ways because we'll be aware of this movement of the kingdom. Because the kingdom has been inaugurated and it is moving, it is transforming the world, it is bringing us toward that second tree in that city. It's a matter of being aware of it and moving with it. So that's where it moves us with it. So this is exciting for us as individuals and as a community. Because arriving doesn't mean being still. Arriving means being to a place where God will do, will do new and different things and lead us and guide us in ways that we didn't anticipate before. But it requires some initiative on our behalf. And it's, it's amazing to see the way that the scriptures lay this out for us and prepare us to arrive well. Will you stand with me? Let me pray to uh, ask God to seal this in us as we go forward this week. God, we thank you that you call us. We thank you that you, your spirit calls us to yourself. We thank you that your spirit calls us on to, to new and different areas. We thank you that the kingdom has been inaugurated and that we can be a part of moving it toward that tree when you return and you make everything right because you are a God who restores and redeems. God, as we enter arrivals, may we arrive well. May we remember, may we establish new patterns of life, and may we be aware of your spirit and what it is saying and doing in our midst. God, may you lead and guide each of us in these days. May you lead and guide each of us in this week ahead. May we be aware of what it is that you would have us to do and what it is that you are doing. God, we thank you that you are God who is with us. We thank you. Amen. Have a good week.